This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 698, Comic Talk Spotlight, Thor Heroes Return Omnibus, Volume 1, Part 2. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 698. It's our Comic Talk Spotlight on uh, Thor Heroes Return Omnibus uh, Volume 1, Part 2 this time. The first part was actually episode 648, so 50 episodes ago that went up back in February, on February the 5th. Uh, so I'm putting this episode on August the 5th, so it's been exactly six months. So let's uh, return to Thor's world. So in a minute, I'm going to throw to myself as I introduce the episode with my guest, Tim Riley, uh, who's previously been on the show and uh, was on the last episode of the Thor uh, Spotlight. Uh, you can always email the show at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, I just wanted a, a quick note about the episode. Um, at the very end, I'm going to get a little existential and, and posit a question about, you know, is it better to get a certain omnibus or is it better to get a complete collection? And then it's just going to cut. Um, I liked where we were going with the conversation, so I decided to kind of leave that in there. And it almost has like this question that I asked the air, the ether, and then just kind of cuts off. Um, the recording uh, software, unfortunately, for whatever reason, decided, you know, I think you've talked enough, and it cut, it cut the episode off. But um, as it is, it's an, it's an hour and 22 minutes or so of conversation uh, with uh, Tim Riley and myself discussing Thor. Uh, so it does end up a little abruptly, so that is not an error. That is real, and I do know that it exists there. Uh, I thought about kind of cutting around it, but I decided ultimately. Ultimately, that I kind of liked how it ended um, with this kind of this this open-ended question that just doesn't go anywhere. I, I don't know why I kind of I kind of dug it. Um, so let's jump right into the episode. And uh, next week on the twelfth, we will have our big exciting seven hundredth episode. Um, as I speak, I've only recorded two segments for the show so far, but it's already over. I think it's around three hours so far, and I am hoping to record a couple more segments. So um, it'll be a, a, a big one at at, uh, at any rate. Anyways, thanks again for listening to Comic Shenanigans, and let's jump right into the conversation as I talk about Thor: Heroes Return Omnibus Volume One Part Two. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 698. This is another uh, Comic Talk Spotlight episode uh, with my good friend Tim Riley. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, glad to be back. Glad to talk about some more Thor today. Yeah, so we're talking about Thor, the, uh, what was it, the Heroes Return Omnibus Part 1. I'm oh, sorry, Part 2. Last time was Part 1. Uh, so the last time was kind of a cleaner episode because it was just, what, the first, what, 16, 17 issues or so of Thor. And this time around, we have a crossover uh, we have some messy stuff happening, um, which is kind of why we cut off the last episode where it was. It was a nice, clean exit point, and here we go all complicated because instead we jump into something called the Eighth Day, which is a very forgotten crossover and probably for good reason. Yeah, there's really no reason anyone should be forced to read or remember this crossover. We did the same crossover back when we did the Iron Man Omnibus, and it wasn't—it didn't fit very well here. It doesn't fit very well here, um, so. I actually feel like, yeah, I, I almost feel like of all the possible omnibuses that it could have been in, or besides a, a you know a fictional uh, juggernaut one, that uh, Thor is probably the best fit for it, just because the characters kind of feel more Thorish as opposed to Iron Man or Spider Man. That's definitely true. The the whole 
it's got a very mythological feel to it when you get down to who the villains are. That fits much better in Thor than it does in Iron Man or Juggernaut or Spider-Man. So we can really quickly kind of breeze through this, and as you said, we've talked about this on another podcast, so it's not like we're really giving a lot of short thrift to it, but it starts in uh, Invincible Iron Man number 21, um, which is not even, I guess, is it a proper, is it just the prologue, or is it actually part one? Uh, it's just the prologue. Oof. It's just sort of, it was thrown in at the back half of another Iron Man issue, covering an entirely different subject. That's right. So, I mean, so the good thing about this story, at least, is that you got Busick and uh, Stern co-plotting, which is always fun and exciting. Uh, you also have Mark Bagley on pencils, so it definitely makes it more exciting. Um, but in terms of, like, the actual story here, like, it, it, there's uh, the actual, I guess, well, sorry, I, should, I guess that's the main issue, because I'm sorry, I'm forgetting that the eighth day prologue is actually at the back, and it's by Tom Grummet, who I do like. Uh, so I do like the art, but the uh, the villain is very kind of forgettable here. Um, do you, like do you care about this character when she shows up here and, and and again looking very Kirby but like not looking like she fits in this book? No, she looks straight out of Jack Kirby Thor issue, very much in that universe. Not really having much to do with technology or anything you'd associate with Iron Man, which is sort of the general thing of this entire crossover. Is just that you know. Everyone in it just sort of feels haphazardly in it because of some weird coincidence. No mm. one feels like, except maybe Juggernaut, because they build him actually into the villain's history. They're all just sort of there because they happen to be walking by. Or as we'll discuss in the Spider-Man issue, for just in completely insane reasons, Spider-Man becomes involved. <laughs> well, and if we skip ahead to the Thor issue, which is, the I guess, the proper part one of this... Um, you know, it's we're starting in the middle of a Thor storyline. Like, it's such a weird place to try and do a crossover that you have Thor in the middle of another battle from the prior issue, uh, which is totally, you know, not part of Eighth Day, and then the Juggernaut's, like, what, just walking by, and then Thor gets involved out of nowhere? Exactly. Thor spends basically the entire crossover complaining that he's supposed to be dealing with this other thing that's happening, <laughs> and that this is just a distraction, and he needs to get back to Asgard to deal with this. So, again, like, yeah, like I said, it's pure coincidence. He's dealing with this completely separate thing, and then Juggernaut happens to walk by. Yeah, I mean, and I do like the fight against Juggernaut. I just wish there was some, you know, a, a grander sense of context for it. I mean, they've, they've tangled before, and it meant more. Whereas here, it just kind of, again... Thor is being like thrown through the air, and he kind of sees the Juggernaut rampaging, and he decides to you know kind of lend a hand. It does. It feels so inorganic to what's going on. Whereas at least Iron Man, the Iron Man issue at least almost felt more natural, <laughs> if that even makes sense. Which it, it, even it doesn't. Like these characters just kind of show up, and they're part of this grander kind of uh, prophecy or this thing that's going to happen. But why are these characters getting involved? How are they getting involved? It's all happening so randomly uh, that, it, again, none of it really works. It doesn't really jive together. You don't really have an understanding of why are all these characters kind of linking up towards each other towards this big ending. Exactly. But you are right that at least the Juggernaut Thor fight looks great. There's no reason for it, but at least they have John Romita Jr. drawing it, so it has just a lot of power to the fight. It looks excellent. Yeah, and again, I guess part of... Again, what we're talking about here is that this felt like a crossover that 
just kind of happens. Um, doesn't really. It's interesting too because like if you just read the Iron Man issues, you're almost not even missing anything because like his story is at least continuous, which I guess is nice from one perspective. Like you're not missing anything. You're missing a little bit because you don't really know the other pieces. But at least Iron Man's piece is you know one straight line. Whereas sometimes with these crossovers, you have to kind of understand how everyone's being involved, and they're kind of showing you that. So it's definitely one of those crossovers where it's just kind of from that character's perspective. But where that doesn't work is how they don't even bother, you know, properly having the character exit their own kind of storylines. Instead, they're just kind of in the middle of something, and then this other thing happens. And each character has this happening. Like, when you open up the Spider-Man issue, he's dealing with totally his own stuff. Like, MJ is freaking out about Peter, and, like, they're having issues with each other. She's like, you know, don't even touch me. Like, let me go. And then you're going to jump him into a crossover. (laughs) Yeah, this is... The, the coincidence is that he's at the Daily Bugle, and it just so happens that the villains have built their entire evil base underneath the Daily Bugle. Yep. For reasons. <laughs> uh, that's more credit than I would even give it. <laughs> like, reasons. Um, not only that, so sometimes I think John Amita Jr.'s tech at times can be a little lackluster um, in its detail. And this weird base that John, that uh, Peter finds himself in is so ludicrously large, but ill-defined. Yeah, it's just sort of a... It's like if you were aping Kirby, but... Not doing a good job of it? You didn't quite get it right, yeah. You were, you were doing all of the stylistic things he would do, but lacking some of the logic he might have behind it. I did appreciate that it felt like there's a brief moment in the Spider-Man issue where Juggernaut's like, uh, you know, you've met my fellow exemplars and the others are these people. Enough of the intros. He's all yours. Like, at least that's an intro. Like, it felt like a lot of this, there's such nameless villains just being thrown about who, like, they're given such little context. Yeah, some of them have some cool looks. Some of them have some characterization, but a lot of them are just sort of there. Yeah. Plus, you get Xavier involved here, which is so ludicrous. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, I, uh, I'm i going to make a phone call. Like, come on, really? <laughs> he calls Westchester and is able to get him. Like, again, this this is this is just a weird, painful storyline, which ultimately adds very little to these characters. And, again, even here it says, like, you know, go pick up Juggernaut number one. So this was all lead up to something else, and we don't even get to see it. Or I guess I just, like, here we do, but, I mean, in terms of these crossovers, like, it's just, like, we're going to lead into this this kind of one-shot, and the one-shot is probably the worst of it all. I just, I can't imagine them today taking Iron Man, taking Thor, taking Spider-Man, and trying to use them all to hype up a juggernaut issue. Yeah, I don't... I'm 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 so flummoxed. <laughs> I guess is the word. Like I don't know why they would do this. What was what the what the point was? Um, and I guess the exemplars and everything show up in Avengers afterwards. Um, but again, here, like you just kind of get to the end of it, and you're like, okay, well, you know, thanks, <laughs> thanks for this story. Like I, it doesn't really add anything to any of the characters. It, it waylays their own current storyline, so it doesn't really add anything to them. Like. The most uh, adept crossovers for these types of things are when, you know, you have this character kind of pulled out of their own milieu, but it somehow still adds something to their ongoing story. Whereas I couldn't say that about any of these characters. And again, it's such a weird hodgepodge of Spider-Man, Thor, Iron Man, and Professor Professor Xavier. Uh, People can complain about crossovers today, and there's things to complain about them. But, I mean, this just goes to show you that this kind of stuff's been going on for a very long time. 
Yeah, and I, again, I, I would say for the most part, it feels like they've got their crossover game down pat better. <laughs> yeah, this is just—I mean, this is the, the final issue you were mentioning. There's just not—it goes on and on and on, and it's just there's. It feels the sloppy. The first three issues, yeah, the first three issues didn't make me want to read a, a gigantic juggernaut size juggernaut issue. No. And again, again, it just—I guess—it just doesn't. It never makes you want to root for any of these characters, or be more interested to see what happens next. Yeah, it's just a and hundred and twenty-page detour from the story you were reading in the omnibus beforehand. Yeah, and I, obviously, for completeness' sake, they had to put it there. But it is one of those things too, where I guess when I when I look at it, it's not objectively awful. Like it's not like it's got the worst art ever or even a bad story. I think it almost it's almost worse because I feel so indifferent. Like it was just kind of like it's there, taking up space, getting in the way of more interesting stuff. Um, you have some good artists being involved, but it feels a little like the art's fine, but the story just feels kind of uninspired and and it kind of limps along. But again, it's not bad. It's just kind of there. And I think that's almost more criminal. Like I've said that before on my podcast, is that I'd almost rather be so upset about something or think feel something so awful because at least I cared or at least I was invested or at least it did something to me. Whereas if I'm just kind of bored and just can't wait for it to be over, that to me is a is a worse crime. I agree. Um, I think you know I understand why they do these things when they're publishing comics monthly, but if you were sort of planning this book as an omnibus from the start, you were looking at them sort of plotting out what's in there, you would just look at the story and say, well, we'll cut this entire thing out. You don't need any of this. I have, there's, I have nothing to say except take it out. It shouldn't be here. Uh, but the completeness part of me would be so upset about that, you know? Like, I, yeah. I feel like as much as from a quality standpoint, I just would rather kind of cut it out and excise it. It just feels weird if you don't include it. Like there's certain um, trades that I've talked about in the past where they've kind of omitted a crossover and it just feels weird. Like I understand that it maybe didn't help the flow. Like I was talking about the, uh, I believe it was the In the Darkness uh, Spider-Man trade paperback where it, it goes through the period right around when MJ comes back briefly before JMS takes over Amazing Spider-Man, but it's covering the Peter Parker Spider-Man issues. So it just doesn't include the Amazing Spider-Man chapters of a four-part storyline. And it feels super weird because you have one issue, the ending of the book with, you know, Peter throwing himself at his knees and hugging MJ, and then the next issue it's like, well, MJ's gone now. I'm like, what? Like, I know what happened. I've read that issue, but if you don't know that... You, that just seems like a weird you know, omission. And yes, it wasn't written by Paul Jenkins, and that's probably why they didn't include it. And it was like this, you know, an annual and a regular issue. But at the same time, you kind of need it for narrative flow, because otherwise it feels weird. So from completeness' sake, I understand why they put it in the omnibus. But yeah, you're right. From, a, from an enjoyability standpoint, it's not there. Yeah, I like, I like the completeness, but it doesn't help the narrative. We have issues like this elsewhere in the book, where all of a sudden, around issue 31... Maximum security just starts happening, and Thor's all of a sudden somewhere different, and you just have to sort of roll with it, and that's that's fine. Oh yeah, I remember that because that that was part of like a whole like celestial storyline that was yeah it barely even given mention. So that does feel a lot a lot worse, right? Like you're you're really coming in on you're like I read the last last issue. He was not in space. <laughs> so let's move on to issue eighteen. Um, so we've got John Romita Jr. still on art. Uh, we still got the good old Dan Jurgens, and we we have Thor deciding to come back to the fight, which apparently has taken a long time to happen. Because like yeah, he was gone a while. Th- for the Warriors three, it must be like they've been fighting for hours, and Thor just wandered off. <laughs> 
if not even days. Like, it feels like he was gone a long time having a full adventure. And they're just fighting, and, like, Jane Foster's there, and, like, or is it Jane or is it the, um, uh, Jake Olson's love interest? Uh, which one is it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, what is Jake Olson's love interest name? But, yeah, she's there because she's dealing with, um, it gets confusing because they all work at the same hospital. Yeah, they all, and they all, oh, Hannah. Yeah, that's right. There we go. Um, I actually like this issue. I mean, there's a lot going on, um, again, with a lot of the you know current storylines of the time. I like how uh, Scarlet Witch is used, although I don't know if that's really how her powers work, but okay. <laughs> like, she's able to kind of try and figure out what's going on with Thor's hammer, which is obviously of, of major concern for him, and he's finding out more about, you know, what's really going on back home, obviously with, with Loki, etc. Um, and I, again, I like that. I like the Mephisto parts. I, I like how um, even Odin looks here. Like, he looks so battle-weary, but also very inspired by Kirby, more so than at other points in this book already. Um, there's a lot of energy flowing around, but I love the coloring. Uh, this issue just feels like it has a lot of energy to it, and it feels like John Romita Jr. was really like, let's do this. Yeah, the art, when, well, whenever he's drawn, it's great. This issue in particular, he said there's just a massive amount of great shots of just these big, epic energy flying everywhere, very old-school Thor-type battles that are just a pleasure to look at. And there's a surprising amount of content because, again, you have, like, you know, the uh, the street scenes where he kind of joins the battle and tries to help out and save people. And then he takes off and, you know, goes back to, you know, help his dad. And I'm actually surprised at just how much content it feels like there is. Like, there's, it feels like there's a lot going on. Even though a lot of it is big splash pages or big battle sequences, it still feels like they, they kind of crammed a lot in. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, they managed to both give you a double-page spread just of Thor, but then managed still to fit in story. Um, so there's definitely a density to it, despite it feeling at times, if you're just flipping through it, they're like, oh, it's just a big battle here, a big battle there. And I think Jurgens is doing a lot of the work with his dialogue to sort of keep the story moving along. Absolutely. Uh, in the next issue, we get uh, a guest penciler. We have Michael Ryan, who I do like, but it definitely has such a different vibe to it. Yeah, it's immediately clear from the first page that, oh, they've changed the artist. It's it's funny. When I look at Thor here, it reminds me of the Thor um, from Heroes Reborn in the last few chapters because I think Michael Ryan was actually came on and did some of the pencils there. I could be wrong, but it, and it kind of feels like how he drew Thor there. I do like his Thor, uh, but again, it's such a drastic difference from what we got in the issue before. It's definitely a change. I don't think it's it's bad in any sense, but if you're coming off John Romita, who's so good, it's tough to switch back to someone who isn't quite at that level. It's interesting. So, like, this issue is all about Enract and finally kind of figuring out who's behind the mask. Um, but it does feel like they take a long time to get there. Uh, you do have Scarlet Witch showing up, so it's an interesting pairing of Scarlet Witch, uh, Odin, and Thor. Um and then you kind of find out, you know, what's really going on here. And then the very ending, you have quite a quite a climactic moment as you have uh, Jake Olson uh, seemingly uh, go to, uh, to to kill the officer uh, in in his uh, hospital bed, which is actually really like scary and kind of crazy that they got this past the comics code. Yeah, it's, it's a very in, intense 
not it's not shaded. It's just the last panel is just him putting a pillow over the face and strangling the person. Yeah, like that's they're that's, not trying to hit. They're just showing you what's happening. That's violent. Like that's you know that that's a pretty extreme move. And to have that just in the issue. I mean, again, this is back when the comics code was still around. This is back when things were relatively PG, and that seems a little bit more excessive. But I mean, it's, it definitely is a moment that makes you go like, "Holy shit! What now?" Agreed. So the, it was twist in this issue, the twist in this issue didn't really land for me very much with them revealing that oh, secretly it's your love, Thor, because it all turns out that well, she wasn't really in control, and it just it seemed forced. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I would absolutely agree. It does feel very forced and doesn't feel natural. Um, the the next issue's cover always kind of sticks out to me that I don't know why. If you look at the Thor as he's standing there, the, the I guess what the the orbs, the discs that are on his chest, the ones that are below the belt look a little extra awkward here. I don't know. I don't know why, but there's just something. Maybe it, it almost looks like I don't know. It just looks really strange. It's this weird pelvic thing going on. I'm not, I'm not really sure. It's a nice cover otherwise. Um, I do like the, uh, and this obviously makes me feel older now, that they had the nice uh, 60 Years of Superheroes logo in the corner, uh, and now it's 80 years. <laughs> yeah, but it does quickly age the book for you if you're following the current Marvel stuff. For sure. Uh, we have John Romita coming back, and we we immediately kind of have uh, them finding out. I'm surprised that Jake, the, the evil Jake Olson, whatever you want to call him here, was not able to uh, kill him, because there was nothing stopping him. Well, there is, if you look up, there's a, in the previous issue, there's a small security camera, so perhaps someone noted a sitter there and rushed in. But it doesn't even seem to happen, right? Because, like, we, or I guess, because they don't hear anything. There's an alarm, but who, who sets the alarm? Well, no, but they do, I, I'm looking forward to the next one. They do, the, Demetrius notices oh. the security camera what's happening, and then they rush okay. in. Okay, you are right, you're, you're correct. It's such a crazy thing, and like even the idea that like, Loki's doing this was was definitely a cool reveal, and not something I would have expected. Did yeah, he... I do like that. Although their solution out of it is straight out of the Mike Murdoch playbook, which I, <laughs> I is the most I, satisfactory no. thing to do. I feel like Jurgens kind of wrote himself a little bit into a corner because it's it's a cool concept, and I think later on where they end up going with the kind of the Olsen concept ends up being more interesting. But at this point, like, it just kind of feels like um, they don't, he doesn't spend enough time with Thor actually having to embrace and, and deal with the, rea- the reality of being bonded with this human. So instead it's kind of like a momentary, like, oh, this is in the way, I got to deal with this. But it never really prevents Thor from really doing his job. Like, whereas with Peter, it, sorry, Peter Parker, they always play it up so that it actually does get in the way and there are ramifications, whereas here you have him bonded to this human and all these things are happening with this human, but it doesn't really end up getting that much in the way. So what's the point? Yeah, they did early on, I felt like it was really interesting to do, but the more the book progressed, the less I thought that angle was working. And maybe it's because, like, you know, Jurgens realized that that wasn't really interesting for him to write, and it was more interesting to kind of just have Thor doing Thor things, and that's definitely what the next run of issues are going to be more about, right? We're going to be seeing more and more of Thor just kind of doing things, which is more fun and enjoyable than him kind of being stuck on Earth dealing with a secret identity. And again, it was probably a great idea as a, you know, a hook to really get you into the book, but where do you go from there and maybe kind of realize that I have to do something different? Yeah, I think in the 20s and 30s, you're definitely right that 
Jurgensen to seem to be sending Thor off into space, getting back to these big epic battles. And then every once in a while, Thor would think to himself, oh, i got to make an appearance back on Earth real quick and do some Jake Olsen stuff. But it just seemed like a very sidelined plot. For sure. No, I was wrong. The next issue is not with... Uh um, JRJR, but part of the reason why I thought it was is because it's Jansen's inks, and especially in the first couple of pages, it feels more like John Romita than a typical Michael Ryan. Like, yeah, I think I can really show you the impact of an inker and how they've influenced things. Like, just like, you know, when you have um, Demetrius and, I guess, Hannah walking around, it, it, it looks like it could be JR. Um, and again, I guess that is the, the influence of the inks by Klaus Jansen. And then as the issue progresses, then you see the Michael Ryan of it all. So, yeah, I think you can tell, just, you know, Ryan's going to lay out a story in a different way than Romita would. So, and inky wise, he's bringing the, the character styling into some consistency. But still, the panel layouts are going to be unique to each artist. And that alone is going to tell you something's changed. Now, so you don't really like this uh, this whole, this whole reveal about who Enract really was and this whole kind of um, this plan? Yeah, it did nothing for me. <laughs> it's kind of it was kind of just messy, right? Exactly, it's messy. It's tying it, I like I love when stories tie back to previous stories in in neat ways. Like one thing I love about Jonathan Hickman, who's doing the X Men now, is he's so great at taking things and building them up and then making you think, oh, 50 issues ago, this thing happened and it connects here. I feel like this is just a really unsatisfying version of that. Now, once the issue is over and we kind of kind of wrap all that up with its, you know, not the most elegant of bows, we do progress into a more interesting aspect of the story where you have, you know, Jake Olson and, and Hannah at home and he's kind of acting not like the way we're used to. And then we have Thor show up and we realize that, you know, this is this is that kind of that false version of, uh, of Jake that we were seeing previously who tried to, you know, kill the, the cop. And it definitely kind of leads to, well, you know, where are we going to go with this now? Um, what does this mean now that Thor realizes that there's uh, this other Jake? You also have uh, the Mangog showing up, um, which he just looks ludicrous. I mean, he's obviously a classic Thor villain, but he doesn't look anything but silly. Yeah, I, I didn't really know much about him until the recent stories Jason Aaron used him in, where he was this massive, massive threat to Asgard. And I think, so when I saw him here, I was like, oh, I'd take this guy pretty seriously, because I've seen what he's done before. He beat all the Thors up in Jason Aaron's run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't fare as well here. No, here he's sort of just assisting Thanos. Which is, it's interesting too, because it makes me wonder, like, where was Thanos at this point that we even get to see him in Mighty Thor? Like, I'm trying to remember, obviously he showed up at one point in Kazar around this period, but I think it was eventually revealed to have been like a robot or a clone or something. Um, Correct. So it's been a little while since I've read that, but yeah, it's interesting to have Thanos kind of come in and and be a Thor villain for a storyline. Yeah, the storyline, there's not too much to it except a big excuse to have Thor and Thanos fight, but I still thought it was great. Um, so, I mean, so uh, in issue 21, we have the Mangog fighting Thor. Again, it looks great because you have J.R.J.R. back. They're having, you know, a big slobber knocker, um, you know, fight. You have, the you know, a reveal that you have Thanos here um, and he's confronting Odin, which is pretty crazy. Like, how, what were your feelings on this particular issue? Um. Again, I think each issue in this, there's just sort of this, they invent a pretense to have an event happen somewhere on some planet, 
And in each case, the pretense is pretty weak, but the what they do once they're there in terms of the fights, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the characterization, I think are really strong. So the plot's a little bit flimsy in each case, including this issue, but that's way overwhelmed by how good everything else is that happens because of that flimsy plot. Mm-hmm. Like the the last page of this issue has got a great shot of Thor kind of doing a classic Thor moment of like kind of swearing that I'm going to do something. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a definition of a Thor type thing to do is you have to plot all of your Shakespearean to clear your courage and how you're going to stomp them down. And I can't do it like Thor can in terms of all the different adjectives you can pull out about bravery and such. But it's classic <laughs> Thor stuff. So why don't you bring us through Thor 2000? All right, so the Thor 2000, that's basically Jurgen's attempt to wrap up all of these various plots going on with Loki. So, you know, in the main Thor book, he's moving on to a very Thanos-heavy, Mangog-heavy plot. And at the same time, he has this Loki thing out there drifting, and he needs some way to resolve that. So the entire point of Thor 2000 is to move that plot over there so that they don't have to set it aside for too long while they deal with Thanos and the actual main book. Um, and in the end, the entire, oh, is Jake Olsen evil plot gets resolved by Thor as Jake Olsen going, oh, that was all my twin. <laughs> <laughs> It's straight out of the Mike Murdoch playbook of just, oh, it wasn't, it was just the twin I've never mentioned before ever, that no one's ever heard of, that there'll be no record of anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's funny, a lot of these types of storylines like the Mike Murdoch, like this, uh, really exist better in a kind of a pre-internet society. Um, where everything isn't kind of on computers and, you know, you could kind of live off the grid, especially like in the 60s, right? Like when Mike Murdoch was first really a thing. Whereas now it just feels extra ludicrous because how would you get around and do anything? Like I can't even imagine, like, if I just picked up one day, took a bundle of cash and, like, you know, moved across the border and, you know, just kind of moved to some sleepy town, people would want to know my, you know, social security number. they want to know everything. He wouldn't just let you get by. (laughs) Like you'd have to have some sort of record of who you are. Yeah, it's so, by today's standards, it's so flimsy, because people would just be like, well, can I see all the pictures of you and your brother growing up? <laughs> why is every, why, on your Facebook, there's nothing with uh, your brother. You've never mentioned him? Uh, there's no pictures with him? Nope. <laughs> nothing. But of, co- but of course, in the issue, when Jake needs a lawyer, what lawyer would you get in the Marvel Universe? Mm. You'd get... Matt Murdoch with his trademark glasses, the red tint. Actually, speaking of Matt Murdoch, so uh, my son and I are going through Spider-Man in the animated series where we got to uh, Daredevil's appearance today. And so the first moment where Daredevil's actually kind of running around in the episode, my son turns to me and he has this sense of recognition because he kind of knows Daredevil but hadn't seen him on the show, obviously. And so and he just has a sense of, of, of recognizing who it is and the giant smile shows up because he's, he's like, hey, I know him. And I'm like, yeah, it's Daredevil. Like, this is crazy. Uh, anyways, that was just his first real interaction with, I guess, remembering an animated version of that character. Um, so bring, cool. bring us back to <laughs> Thor 2000. So the other aspect of Thor 2000 is a story, um, I believe it's, um, who's the, it's by Jose Ladron, and it's kind of just telling a story of what happens when Thanos comes to a planet, and of course it doesn't go well, but the storytelling, the way they handle it, but just sort of the 
narrator giving out some information about what's happening is really great. Um, it's the kind of story, it's, it's hard to sit here and describe it because so much of it is the execution of the art itself. But, um, you know, the, the main story of the annual is very much, like, it's, it's isolated and it works within the context of the Thor story. But this story here, you could pull this, these 10 pages out stick them in any Thor book or any book period. And you'd be like, that's just a really great story. I was happy to have hmm. just I, excellent stuff. I do feel that Jose Ladron is kind of like a, uh, second coming of Kirby in a lot of ways in terms of how he kind of puts things on the page. I remember especially like when he was doing Cable in the late 90s, you know, he just said it at the time, I, I don't think I appreciated it and couldn't really enjoy it the same way. But now I look at it and I'm like, he's, he's just figuring out how to do Kirby now. Um, and again, it looked a little retro and different, but it was still so cool to look at. Oh yeah, this the art in here looks nothing like Michael Ryan's or John Romita's art. It, the, from the first page, you're like, oh, something different about this any other final thoughts about 2000 um i thought i think the way they handled it was a good idea they needed to resolve the loki stuff but they had these other plots going on in thor so if you're going to do an annual here's a story that deserves that extra page count to deal Mm. with it so i thought it was an effective story i don't particularly care for the way it's all resolved but i mean that's what can I, I mean, it's just not ideal. Could have done better there, but <laughs> at least they got it resolved. So we have Thor 22, Tears of the Gods, where it nice, has, has a nice little stop. If you haven't yet read Thor 2000, we sincerely urge you to do so. Otherwise, who boy, are you going to be confused? I miss stuff like this. <laughs> yeah, they don't always have that same whimsy or rapport with the audience that they have. I think, you know, it, modern comics tend to take everything up little bit more seriously and because of that they tend to avoid a lot of things like this they tend to avoid some of like the the funnier quirkier things you used to see for sure so this this issue i'm in you got some great jrjr art a lot of again like we said before a lot of just kind of action uh and and jorgen's trying to figure out how to kind of move the plot a little bit as we do this but you know with putting in dialogue etc but you have a lot of like thor just being blasted him being hit by the mangog you know thanos using the chalice and kind of blasting him there and drinking of the chalice and uh the designate being there like there's just a lot of of stuff and you got the recorder being involved it's just a lot of stuff kind of all shoved in together it is and it's just the I, I hate to use this term because it's so overused, but you know the entire plot is just built around a series of MacGuffins that Thanos is going around picking up. Yeah. And so in this issue, he's trying to get the next MacGuffin in his MacGuffin set to continue the plot going. Well, I guess that's part of the problem with Thanos in general is that we end up with just a series of MacGuffins. What I do like about this, again, is that we kind of start with things at the end, and then we kind of go back and say, well, this is a vision of what could happen, and we got to stop this. And that I do find more interesting, that you kind of lead off with the, the worst-case scenario, and you're kind of wondering how these things are all going to play out, and then we start to see that as the issues unfold. And that, at least, is more interesting. It's a, it's a neat way to lay it out narratively, especially when they pay that back off on the other side, where they sort of, in, in terms, start building up towards that moment. Of course, you know, because it's the comic that's going to continue, that it's not necessarily going to go that way, but having it set up and knowing how it could go, I think adds to the tension. 
for sure. There's just something about when you, yeah, when you kind of leap into something, especially the way they do it here is pretty smart because because it's Thor, you can do it as a vision of the future, you know? Like, it's it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing the narrative by doing it this way. You're just adding more tension. Although the, end of, this, the end of this issue is not my favorite ending because it just kind of feels a little bit more haphazard. In terms of the how it ends for Thor, or the little two page, the two page for a Balder. Um, <laughs> no, but I like I like the character they introduced though. Here, he has a funny role throughout the thing with the way he his, his weird plot to manipulate Odin and trick him, which is seems readily transparent. Odin's pretty lazy about getting played by him. <laughs> Um, when we uh, get to the next issue, so we have that big kind of splash of Fire Lord by um, JRJR. Do you like that splash? Do you think it's actually good art, or do you think it's just really sped through? Uh, that's kind of a. I, I, get, I have to admit that's a bit of a leading question. Obviously, I think you know where I'm lying there, but mm-hmm. no, I, I like it, but it's definitely you look at it and you think you can suspect that perhaps he did it this way because it'd be faster. Hmm. So that, I take it you're not a fan of this particular page? No. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> even the page after, like, it feels just kind of kind of lazy? Like, I don't know. Like, And to be fair to JR, I feel like he was doing this and Spider-Man still at the same time. Like, I think he was doing two books at once. So, you know, I, I don't... I'm not... I'm still a fan. I'm not meaning to kind of slag on him. I'm just saying, like... There's, this is maybe not all of his best work or maybe shortcuts were being taken but I think it's also because maybe he was working on too much at the same time yeah I think it, as you look at his art throughout this book I think it remains strong but you definitely begin to feel like he doesn't have the same amount of time to invest in each page I mean I don't think it's because he's not working hard like you say he's drawing multiple books and I think he just hit the point where he was investing as much time as he could in each page but that amount of time you can invest was growing smaller and smaller and smaller every issue mm-hmm. and you end up resulting in pages like this where you can perhaps see the artistic merit but also you wonder if you invested a few more hours and it might look better yeah and as you said unfortunately with the the plotting of this issue like it is MacGuffin after MacGuffin you have you know Thor getting more allies uh, trying to kind of find Thanos Thanos is getting more of the pieces that he needs as he's finishing his MacGuffin quest so <laughs> You know, it's not the most thrilling in some ways because it's just kind of hunting him down and him slowly achieving his goals. So, you know, from a plotting perspective, it's not that it feels lazy, but it also at times feels like it leans more heavily on the art to kind of tell the story and make you more interested uh, by these kind of big, bigger, larger than life visuals. But the, the, the story is really simple. Yeah, the story is just this pretense set up to get Thor and various people somewhere so they can have some battles have a little bit of characterization but yeah overall it's each issue is just here's the next MacGuffin let's put it on this planet and then we'll have everyone race to try to get it yeah and again uh, having Mangog be just the flunky does feel like it mitigates his importance overall like as you said if you read him in the most recent Jason Aaron story story, he was given a lot of emphasis about not just being powerful but being kind of the end that was coming whereas here he's still powerful but he doesn't feel like he has any real agency of his own yeah but you could argue I guess maybe you know Thor's given what he wants he wants to just rain destruction and Thor's saying hey I'll give you all the things to destroy you want 
So you can view it as Thor just being, I'm sorry, Thanos just being smart and getting Man God to do as he wants by creating situations that are mutually beneficial. Hmm. Uh, so issue 25 uh, is kind of a big one. It has a nice cover with uh, some extra armor and stuff. What do you think of this? Right, did we, did we jump ahead of 20? I think we did we jump ahead of 24. I think I was mentioned. Well, I, you know, I guess we kind of did. <laughs> um, yeah. I was just, well, I was just thinking it is. It's more of the same. You know, it's it's more it, of it really is. Like it, you're 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 developing more of Thanos and Mangog's kind of working together, and more of Thor trying to kind of bring an end to it, and kind of getting us to the point that we saw in that flashback earlier. But there's not a lot extra in there. So the only thing worth mentioning, other than the new MacGuffin they're going after in 24 is 24 is the issue where the guy Baldar meets, brings out the bag, and he's like, I'll help you, but you have to give your Odin power to whoever's in this bag. And Odin's kind of like, ah, there's no time to open the bag. I'll just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He literally could spare five seconds to open the bag and peek in and see what might be in there. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Again, it was kind of a weird side story to have happening at the same time. Yeah, but it, it works well to set up the next story, but it just it makes Odin look like the laziest king in the world. I mean, he often does, though. <laughs> I don't open bags. <laughs> <laughs> um, issue 25, I, I think that the art feels more like uh, J.R. was spending more time on it. Um, and that he did have a little bit, a little, maybe a little bit more lead time. Even the opening page with the recorder, I thought was, you know, again, it has a lot of his typical tech, but I at least thought it was better detail than usual. I think you're right. Yeah, just looking at the splash page, there's it appears there's a lot more invested here than there may have been in the Fire Lord splash page from 23. Oh, yeah, not even a question. <laughs> Um, and like again everyone seems a little bit bigger and grander here like and again I think that comes to the idea that he's spending more time on it like even when we first see Odin here he looks much more massive than in some of the previous shots where he almost looked diminutive at times or they were kind of playing him maybe not the same whereas here he looks the way he should he looks like he towers over Ulick like everyone kind of feels grander and again I think this is just maybe JR having more time to really spend on it and even when we do see Fire Lord here there's more detail given to him um, again I just feel like this is a much better artistic outing i wonder and i have to check the the dates to see what, what he was working on but i wonder if it's around this time that he may have stopped working on multiple books at the same time maybe but again like this is not that uh, you know I, I think this is he might have taken an issue to off from amazing spider-man i can't remember um but it's leading up to the point where he's about to do the jms jms run so it's it's in and around, but, but at least this one feels like he got to spend a bit more time on it. I don't know if that's true or not, but it definitely felt like it was... Even the, the energy shots, like, there's a lot of the kind of the big bombastic action, but even those shots looked like there was more detail in them, as opposed to just big energy blasts. Like, there's a shot with uh, Thor where he kind of uh, takes Mjolnir and kind of shoves it in Mangog's face and kind of blasts through. Like, even that shot, I thought, felt like it had more power and more vitality to it. Yeah, there's definitely a, a step up in the amount of detail being invested into these. There's a great, um, the second to last page, the issue is great. It has Thor after the battle, all of his armor's broken off, and just an excellent-looking splash page of a victorious Thor. Mm-hmm. 
overall, how did you feel about Thanos being a villain for Thor? Like, do, did you think it was a, a good choice to use him, or did you think it was, you know, just, they just needed someone super powerful to kind of lead them on a quest, or do you think it needed to be Thanos? Do you think it, there was, was there anything about this that screamed that it had to be Thanos, or could it have been anyone else? Um, I think it could have worked with someone else, but I, I think Thanos is a good threat for Thor because he's physically able to hang with Thor, but also he has this mental edge over Thor that makes him very interesting. Thanos is very smart, but also very powerful. That creates a very dangerous villain for Thor. You know, Mangog alone, he will destroy a lot of things. He's very dangerous, but he's not going to outthink Thor. No. That's very true. Now, uh, are you ready to move on to what I'm going to call a whole new era of Thor? Because it's very different from here on out. It is. It, there's a big change starting after issue 25. So issue 26, we have uh, Eric Larson coming to uh, provide breakdowns with uh, Klaus Janssen doing finishes. And uh, you could not, I think, have a more to- a larger tonal shift from JRJR to the more... Um, you know, kind of not comedic, that's the wrong word, but definitely more exaggerated tones of Larson. Yeah, I think Larson here is trying to do his version of Kirby in terms of the way he's drawing things and laying things out. And if I remember right, this is around the time he was doing a lot of work for Marvel at the same time. So that's I think right. He was drawing three or four books a month at this point for them, so the work doesn't have a you know, it's a lot like Ramita's last few issues before 25, where clearly he's relying a lot on the inker to, to finish things up for him. Well, I, I, well, to be fair, I mean, they even credit him as doing just the breakdowns here. So, like, this isn't this isn't doing full pencils. And, again, he was working on Amazing Spider-Man and, I think, an issue with Peter Parker at the same time. He was still doing Savage Dragon. So he was definitely doing a lot of work. Um, so that, that's obviously why he was only doing, you know, kind of... Um, the breakdowns, but I mean, the breakdowns are so unmistakably him that even with Jansen on finishes, it, it, it's, it screams Larson. And uh, to be fair, part of that's also to Jansen's credit to not lose the intent of the artist, right? Like this doesn't feel like he's overcrowding the art and making it look like a Jansen book. Whereas I would argue that in the mid nineties, when you had, um, uh, what's his name? Buscema on Spectacular Spider-Man. You had some issues where you had Bill Sinkovich doing the the inks, and you could tell it was him doing the inks. Like there was no mistaking that something had changed. Uh, something was way dark. Um, the blacks, like everything, was just so different. Whereas that, so that was an art, uh, an inker who was really overpowering the penciler. Whereas here, this doesn't feel overpowering. No, I agree. If Bill Sinkovich is inking you, you're going to know Bill Sinkovich is inking you. It's going to be very, very clear. I've just never been a big fan of the breakdowns and finishes style of doing art. I, it always, to me, every time I've, I've seen it in an issue, it just sort of makes the art look clearly inferior to what it would have been if they had done full pencils than inks. I've never seen it. There's oftentimes you have issues back-to-back where one time they did full pencils with inks, other times it was breakdowns and finishes, and the full pencils with inks un, un, every time is going to look better than it did with the breakdowns. Hmm. And so given that this issue, did you feel like it was in- noticeably inferior to what you would anticipate from someone like Larson? Um, yeah, I don't have real strong expectations of him. I've never, I didn't mean that in a negative way. That could sound really bad. Just that I don't have 
some platonic ideal of what his art should look like in my head that I might have with other artists. You know, mm. I've seen his work on Spider-Man, I've seen a little bit of the Savage Dragon stuff, but um, I don't have this perfect version of Larson that I'm expecting that I'm comparing this to. So I thought the art worked well, but it's coming off of, you know, what we had in issue 25. It's clearly a step back to me. Hmm. Um, there's one particular panel that does, I don't know why it bugs me and it really shouldn't, but, uh, the panel where you have Demetrius, um, uh, introducing, uh, Jake to his sister, which another kind of convenient trope to introduce a new character, but to kind of do it in a way that implies familiarity. Um, but if you look at the first panel there, um, the shadows are so terribly done. Um, they're almost like weird horseshoes that are not at the right angle to the characters. So it just looks like there's this weird ink splot or like gas splot behind where they're standing. I don't know why it bothers me, but it just, it really sticks out to me. <laughs> do, do you notice that? Yeah, I can, I can see it in there. It's, uh, like it's, it's poor. It's, 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 I don't even know what, 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 what happened here. Like it just looks so strange. Like it's obviously a choice. You don't just accidentally do this on the page, but it just doesn't work. I agree with you on that. I would almost rather just not see any shadows at all. Agreed. I think if you look at the plot of this issue, um, it's still, it's again, it's a very big change from what we had in 25. 25 is this huge climactic intergalactic battle. And now we're back to, you know, here's one villain in New York city trying to save his life. Like it's, he's definitely pulled the stakes back big time and he started building things back up again. True. I like it though. I mean, I like that, you know, you kind of put Odin out to pasture for a little bit by having him have the Odin sleep. You have, you know, Sif kind of has the, the ring Imperial now, um, which I thought is interesting that Thor is kind of like, Whoa, what's going on here? Um, but, and I like the, I actually, as much as some of the art in the, uh, the story with Absorbing Man doesn't always work, especially I think with the, uh, portrayal of Titania that she just kind of looks off. Uh, but otherwise, like I really liked having this be a more personal, intimate story for him. Like he's trying to get help for his, you know, his, his, you know, the love of his life. He doesn't know how to do it. He's kind of dumb. Uh, they definitely play him extra dumb here. Um, Larson definitely plays up the more cartoonish a- aspects of his personality and, in, in the visuals. Um, but I, but I like it because you can kind of understand, you know, this guy's just freaking out trying to you know, save the person he loves and doing everything he can, uh, even if it means doing bad things. Yeah, I think this is a classic marvel trope of the the villain appearing to do the villainous thing but for actually perhaps good reasons and you know the hero of course attacks him but then never the hero realizes well maybe i should be helping him not in the way he wants help but i should be helping him in some way for sure and then and so this continues out over into the next issue as well and again we get more fighting with absorbed man at the same time as uh, jane foster's trying to help uh titania uh who look like it's it's kind of inconsistent because there's panels here where like she looks like the worst I've ever seen this character look. Like, maybe not even just the art being bad, but also just her looking so exaggerated and like dying. And yet at the end of the issue, she's still able to like hold up stuff and like still use her super strength. It just seemed a little inconsistent. Yeah, I didn't even. Re- I when I first saw her, I was thinking like, isn't he married to Titania? Because that doesn't look like the person I'm expecting. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like. I'm trying to remember my chronology. I feel like 
maybe it was around this time that there was another Titania Absorb Man story that was similar in Amazing Spider-Man, but I can't remember the exact timing of it. Uh, but it wasn't that different. It was the same type of idea, him trying to kind of get help for her and her being sick. But I like that. Like Again, it was more humanizing. Again, we, we've changed the stakes. Um, once you kind of... Our, issue 25 was so big and so grand that it feels nice to kind of make it more personal and kind of bring everything back. And I think Larson really helps to bring the the story back down to earth. Like, again, it's a little bit exaggerated and silly and cartoony at times, but I really dug it. It's a plot that's been a lot, but that's because it's a plot that works. For sure. In the next issue... Um, a hilarious opening page, which reminds me a lot of something you would see back in like an old school Kirby issue with Thor having a, like, I guess a milkshake or something, uh, the Asgard special. Yeah, that's right. They're all in there too. Well, and then on the next page you have Volstag and he's got the full <laughs> gigantic carton of ice cream he's eating from. Now it's interesting. This does feel like an issue that, uh, definitely pulls a lot more of the Jansen influence. Um, cause the inks are a little bit heavier, especially like in that page, like it, there's a little bit more weight to all the characters than maybe we would have seen in a, in a more typical Larson fashion. Yeah. This time we have it credited as rather than breakdowns and finishes, they just credit them both as artists. So I imagine it is because Jansen's taking a, maybe a, a stronger hand with it. Uh, now here we see a few, a few things, but first of all, we have, um, you know the wrecking crew, which are are not they're really kind of played for laughs. We have we get to see a little bit more of Sif now that she's kind of taking over for Odin. Uh, we get to see more of um, uh, Baldur's favorite captor, who has the uh, the casket, and he's all excited about that. So they're definitely kind of moving things forward. Um, the main fight with the wrecking crew is a little bit forgettable, but still fun to see um, to see the you know Thor kind of fighting them. Uh, although things don't look so good for Hogan. They do not. Um, we have an incredible splash page in here of Sif where she's she's done up. Oh, yeah. In her full I'm the Queen regalia, and it looks great. It's, you know, it's a it's a great shot by uh, by the creative team. I mean, it, it kind of takes everything about her and then amps up the kind of the more Odin-ish aspects of the kind of leader of Asgard. And, yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome page. I don't know if we ever really see much more with her looking this awesome, but it's it's a nice touch for sure. Yeah, I think that that's probably the if I, if I was betting that's had to be the page Larson loved the most out of this issue doing. Oh, for that's sure. classic Kirby type stuff you're seeing right there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the next issue we have um, someone who I would say is not anyone I would expect to kind of do a Thor book, which is Andy Kubert. Um, now I love Andy Kubert, and we have Scott Hanna on Inks, but what a different creative team. And is they are bouncing around a lot, going from Ramita to Larson, now into Kubert. Um, but his opening splash page, the picture of Hella, just looks great. I think Hella has one of the best looks in comics. Oh, and for sure. He nails it right here. Oh yeah, and like it, it's interesting how he kind of combines like this the danger with that kind of this weird, sexy, alluring thing, which Hella, Hella always kind of has, and definitely the movie version of Hella kind of has a lot of that as well. For sure, I, just especially when she has the headdress on, the look is just one of the best. And if you just think about people that I think look great, that the character is so well designed, so unique, and it fits the characteristics of the characters, I think Helen's at the top of the list. Well, and she's very unique too, right? Like there's there's no there's making no mistake about her. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no one else 
that has a look anywhere close to her. You see her immediately, you know. And it's interesting, like, you get, like, pages and pages where ostensibly nothing's really happening, but it's 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 very thrilling regardless because you have Hela kind of coming and taunting that she's taking Hogan with her and Thor is being, you know, not being able to admit that and wants to bring down the lightning and trying to save Hogan. And then, you know, they, they were able to resuscitate him and it really kind of pisses off Hela. But, you know, technically speaking, not a lot's really happening there, but in terms of actual plot progression, but there's so much more emotion to it and development and characterization that you kind of forgive it. Yeah, you're right. Looking through it, they're just sort of page after page. They're talking about it. Thor saying, well, you can't take him. I'm going to do this. Just lots of characters arriving on the scene, having conversations. (laughs) (laughs) And even when we have, like, so again, when we go back to Baldur's, uh, Baldur's favorite demonic friend, uh, or evil elf or whatever you want to call him, he looks so much cooler here than he looked in any of his other appearances, and he looks like an actual threat here. Although too bad he's on it. He's a threat for about three pages until... I know! <laughs> like, he's almost instantly, like, rendered into nothing because Malekith uh, takes over the uh, the casket, but up until that point, it was so cool. Like, he finally looked like the intimidating threat that he, you know, was kind of being written like but was never being given that much, um, you know, respect artistically. Yeah, a little surprising to see them sort of create this character, use them, and then just immediately off him to bring in someone else to actually take advantage of it. Well, I mean, they're getting rid of him to bring in someone more, you know, recognizable. Like, Malekith is a much more recognizable character, and so a, a little bit more intimidating. That's obviously probably why they used Thanos in the last storyline, because, again, you bring in Thanos, he, it brings with him a certain cachet, whereas if you just name him, you know, World Conqueror X, it doesn't really have the same built-in uh, sense of who this character is and why we should take it as, as a credible threat right away. I can see that. Although, I get frustrated sometimes when you're reading... You know, runs from various creators or books because you know if you're reading someone's runner in Fantastic Four, you're inevitably going to get their Doctor Doom story or their this guy story. They're just always going to try to hit all their big names. And even further, they almost always reveal that whatever new character they did create was actually this older character. <laughs> um, a good example of that would be like Jason Aaron. You know, just did a big he was. Avengers pretty recently did a big story with vampires and at the end it turns out oh it was all Dracula's plan and all the old all the new guys you thought were new and cool they all they're all they all stink it's actually all Dracula I wish they would just sort of stick with the new guys more yeah oh absolutely um, this issue, again, I love Andy Kubert, so his art here is fantastic. Again, his battle with Thor and the Wrecking Crew definitely reeks of power, and, and you know, it is at times a little condensed. Like, I could have gone for six or seven extra pages of this fight. Like, it almost felt so truncated, because there's so much that Jurgens has wanted been doing here that we didn't get to have as much time with the actual action. But it just goes to show you that this is, you know, this issue has enough that a current comic would take this one issue and make it like six issues like there's just so much involved here in terms of like again you have them trying to figure out what's going to happen with Hogan and try and save his life which could be an issue in and of itself uh, you have um, Malekith attacking this other elf and taking the casket that could have been its own issue you have uh, everything that's still going on with with Asgard you have Thor versus the Wrecking Crew like there are multiple issues worth of content burned off in one issue Definitely, yeah. He's not holding things back for later. He's just getting through the story he wants to tell and telling it at the pace he thinks it should be told at, not worrying about 
And that's how comics used to work, though, tomorrow. right? That's how comics used you to have- work. Like, you, you know, you used to get a full... You, you put in everything. You had subplots. You had everything. Whereas now, you may have an A-plot. You may have one. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. They hint at an A-plot sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Um, issue 30 is part of the Maximum Security crossover. Now, I remember when I was younger, I wasn't reading Thor regularly. So I had picked up, I think, just the Thor 8th Day crossover, maybe. I know for sure I picked up the... Um, uh, but Thor 8, I think, that uh, cross, or Thor number 2, I don't know, I can't remember which one, but the Thor that crossed over with Peter Parker Spider-Man with the rhyming villain, and then I remember picking this up because I was buying everything Maximum Security. Why? I don't know. Um, but, so, like, I, I remember, like, there's a bunch of issues, and this is one of them where I didn't really know much about Beta Ray Bill, but I thought he looked awesome. Um, the opening splash, uh, big page here by... Uh, of Malekith by Andy Cooper just looks gorgeous. Like every every page here looks so meticulous. Like I don't know how much time Andy had to spend on it, but it feels like it looks like he had all the time in the world. Like I, it doesn't feel rushed. None of this feels rushed. His entire kind of brief run on this book feels like he had all the time in the world somehow, and that everything just looks amazing. Agreed. Uh, looking at the cover with Ben Ray Bill, like you said, he he just has an incredible look. Um, it's similar to Thor, but different enough from Thor to stand on its own. It's just incredibly, as a character, he's well designed. As a particular rendering of that character, excellent as well. And like again, I, you just you you see this cover on the stands, your eyes are immediately drawn to it. First of all, the colors are interesting because of the perspective of having kind of the boot right at your face, um, and also the the color of the hammer. He's running towards you. The sh- the kind of the shadows on him. He, it just looks very compelling. So if you don't know who Beta Ray Bill is, you want to know why who he is and why he's back. Exactly. Um, it's just. I think, you know, if you go to a comic store, there's so many things on the shelf that you're looking for some way to stand out. And I think this cover, when you're just staring at a big wall of art, is going to jump out at you. Now, you had mentioned kind of off-podcast that this issue is kind of weird, though, because Thor's suddenly in space. We're talking about a, you know, a big adventure that he had with in the event, Avengers Infinity Limited series. He's with Star Fox and Tigra and Jack of Hearts, Moon Dragon, um, uh, Captain Marvel 2, Photon, whatever she's called at this point, Quasar. It's such a weird assemblage of heroes. You're not really given a lot of context for why they're all there. And suddenly they're like attacked by, by aliens and you know, Thor's having to kind of fight them off in the middle of a spaceship, and he does a big blaster. I'm like, wouldn't that have punctured the spaceship or something? Yeah, this is... It's it's so weird jumping from 29 to 30, because we had in 29 him so worried about Hogan, and now he's off in space with these characters we've never seen before. Yeah, I mean, and you still have them worried about Hogan. Like, you have uh, Volsag eating all the cheeseburgers in the world for a snack, or cookies or whatever they are in front of him. Um, and then, like everyone's still kind of worried about what's going on, but also there's so much going on on Earth. You have a, you know, a frost. I guess is it a frost giant or just an alien that's that's there? And then you have Balder fighting. You have Beta Ray Bill shows up. Like a lot of crazy stuff is happening. And even Beta Ray Bill says like he doesn't know why he looks like this again. Like he's like I don't know how I got my Thor power back or why I was exiled here, but I'm gonna you know I'm gonna handle stuff. And I'm like, you really you're just gonna drop him in and not explain any of this? <laughs> Yeah, they do just sort of, he's back, don't worry about it, he doesn't know, nobody knows, we'll deal with it later, but enjoy the splash page. Yeah. Again, the art looks great there. 
Mm-hmm. Plus, we have a, a second issue in a row where Hella expects to take Hogan and then is denied and looks really upset. I love when he draws Hella sort of looming over the hospital room. Yeah. I like that. Well, in the next page where it's her kind of screaming away, like that just looks hilarious. <laughs> but I mean, I guess like how else do you illustrate that? It's such a weird choice. Yeah, that is one of those things you get as an artist where you know, the writer's written a quick sentence like, oh, Hella does whatever she's doing here. And you think as an artist, how in the world do I draw that? <laughs> For sure. Um, and then next issue, again, more Kubert and Hannah. Although it's interesting, the art definitely doesn't quite feel the same. So I feel like there's a few pages here, the first page in particular, that doesn't, I don't think it was just, uh, I think Andy may have just done breakdowns for it because like the, the detail on Thor and his face doesn't quite match up with what we're used to. Yeah, I think you're right. You're looking at the face, it definitely is, doesn't look like the same amount of time was spent detailing that out as in the issues we saw before. Uh, but I mean, there are for most of the issue though, it starts to feel like it is a little bit more. Like you see, you can kind of tell which pages that maybe has more of the detailed pencils, and then you see the ones where maybe it was just breakdowns, um, or where you have certain uh, kind of identifiable things that Kubert usually does. Um, the issue kind of has to move the action back to Asgard so that everyone can kind of understand that Malekith does have the casket and what this means. Um, so it's a little bit of a rocky kind of uh, entrance point to that, but once they're there, it's definitely off and running. I, I love the page where Jake Olsen comes home, though, and all the Asgardians are sort of hanging out in his house, drinking beer, <laughs> eating pizza. <laughs> and this is something we saw kind of in the Simonson run, because, I mean, yeah, I think he was living with Hercules for a little while, so it's not like we haven't seen this type of thing before, but it's always very funny. And again, Volstagg always eating a pizza. Yep. Yeah, except the last issue, as you mentioned, there was the great scene where he's at the hospital buffet and just getting all of everything for his snack. So, of course, he's eating. <laughs> um, what did you think about the uh, the return of Curse at the very end? Um, not too much at all. I mean, it just sort of seemed... I, I'm not too familiar with the character, so it seemed to me just that another guy in the story attacking Thor... Okay, well, there, there is backstory there. I'm not going to ruin it for you. I'll tell you a little bit off pod, maybe, but uh, or tell you where to go to find it. Uh, he definitely is a character with a lot of backstory with Thor, uh, so it's always cool to kind of see him here. Um, and is, a thing about issue 32, which I guess um, in the omnibus I don't believe it includes it, but uh, 32 is part of an experiment that Marvel was doing at the time called these 100-page monsters. Um, so you would have a main story, which was you know just the re- the regular story, but then they threw in a bunch of extra content. Um, just kind of reprinting some old stories um, that the character had been in. So I remember like they did it in X-Men, Amazing Spider-Man, and a bunch of others, and I guess Thor obviously was one of them as well. Yeah, these always throw me off. Because um, I know like, there's, there's other books other than Thor had these 100-page monsters, like you mentioned, that you turn to the page for the cover, and you're like, oh, I'm getting a big issue coming up here. And I always forget to, like, no, actually, it's like a 22-page comic with 80 pages of reprints. And we're not going to put 80 pages of reprints in this omnibus. So I was thinking, like, there's just going to be this gigantic conclusion of this cask of winter stories. No, that's not what the 100-page monster is. No. Um, what, what did you think about this particular issue and having Thor kind of confronting both Malekith and Curse and trying to get the casket back? Uh, I thought it was a good issue overall. I love the ending of it where um, you know Jake Olsen comes back home and brings Beta Ray Bill along with him, which immediately <laughs> <laughs> not, knocks the woman, the woman just faints. Um, she's not physically attacked, but she's just so 
She goes, eek, it's a monster. <laughs> I did like that. Uh, you have Sif here about to, you know, um, is, is, is getting to get to kind of lay the final blow on Malekith. And we actually pull back and we don't get to see it. Uh, but we just kind of see the sound effect as everyone kind of watches. And, and even uh, Volsag is like, zounds. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. It's interesting because we talked about a few issues ago with Sif wearing the cool headdress and looking really like badass. And they kind of, I, I almost say that Kubert really downplays it and we never really get to have Sif be as awesome as we thought she might get to be. Yeah, he doesn't play her nearly as regal as Larson drew her. You don't get really that feeling of this is effectively Odin now. No. Now, next up is interesting because we get a very young Stuart Eminem. Um, with Wade von Grabadger, who again they're a very classic creative team these days, but this is you know this is a long time ago. This is what sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years ago, um, and we're seeing this creative team at a very early juncture. And man, does there you can see the genesis like the genesis of who Imminent is, but it's not nearly as polished as what you're used to if you're a fan of his current work. No, if you compare this to say what he did on All New X Men, you're getting very different style. Oh yeah, like yeah. You, I don't even think it's so drastically different. Like again, you can see the you can see the the beginnings of who he's going to become, but it's so different. It's such a different style. I'm not even sure who he's trying to ape in particular, or if he's just kind of figuring out what his own style is going to look like. Um, I almost at times feel like there's a lack of detail, whereas now he's, he's got a lot of detail in his work. Um, but he definitely plays up the action well. But again, I, I guess th- at times there could be more details in the action. So coming up before this issue, hadn't he been working on, I think, for DC doing Superman? I guess so. I'm trying to remember the chronology. That that does sound like it could be right. It's just interesting. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with the art either, right? It's just more because we know who he becomes. It seems weirder. Exactly. Yeah. It's nothing. It's it's a good. It's well drawn. It's I've enjoyed the story. There's nothing to complain about it. It's just not what you expect when you see the name Stuart Eminent on the cover. No, it's kind of like if you go back and you uh, read very early Brian Hitch, like you can see pieces of the Hitch he's going to become, but not like the, you know, the ultimate Hitch where, you know, very um, photorealistic and having such a, you know, a very realistic sense of how to draw people and action and having such much power in it. But you look at his earlier stuff, you can, you can see him in there. It's almost like he's trying to, f- he's just trying to figure out who he is. And that's kind of how I feel here. Again, there's nothing bad about it, and at the time it was probably very good art, but again, if you take it in context with who he becomes, it does feel like lesser work. Definitely true. Um, I think this, as you mentioned with Hitch, whenever you look at his work on the X-Books in the 90s, I always have to pull myself back when I see his name, so I have to remind myself, that's not Ultimate Hitch, that's pre-Ultimate Hitch, it's a little bit different, can't, <laughs> don't expect <laughs> that going into this book, or you'd be very disappointed. For sure, and I, I think you're right. I think uh, Eminem was working on uh, Superman around this point in time in, ter- uh, in terms of his chronology. So it's just interesting. Yeah, we're, we're, we're to see him come in just to do one issue of Thor like that because he's, he's a. If you're doing that for DC, you're a big enough name where you expect that you're probably not just doing one-off issues of Thor. So I, I think maybe he, just, maybe he just wanted your issue of Thor. Maybe he just likes Thor. Well, actually, it looks like uh, maybe this was like a tryout because I'm looking at his kind of chronology. It looks like he was done on Superman and then kind of migrated over to Marvel. He did, first he did an issue of Rising Stars, or he's, he was involved in some way. He was involved on an issue of Fantastic Four. Then he was on, um, or around this time, was on this issue of Thor. 
And then he left for a little while and then came back with Thor 38. And actually, it looks like he was on the book for a, much longer than I remember. Um, probably up to issue... I can't see the exact numbers, but he's on it for like at least a, uh, you know four or five issues. So maybe this was kind of a, you know, maybe you'll be the right fit when we need an artist. I guess we might see how his style begins to evolve once we hit into that second omnibus. So what do you think of, uh, of again, his appearance here? Like it's kind of a, not the most memorable issue. You got to see Thor fighting this giant robot. Um, again, you got to see the beginnings of, I guess, Thor girl. Um, yeah, with- this finally explains where Thor Girl comes from. I, I know her well from um, Avengers Initiative. I had no idea where she came from whatsoever. So when you showed up here, I had to check Wikipedia and see, is this the same Thor Girl that's an Avengers Initiative? It is. Yeah. What do you think of her? Um, again, it feels like another case of, much like the previous twist with Thor's romantic interest, you know, that Jurgens had this character... He wanted to tie her back in, so he makes her a Thor girl. But there just didn't really seem to be... Why does this particular character want to become a Thor girl so much? Mm-hmm. Why are we... It's, it seems a little forced. Yeah. And speaking of forced, uh, Beatty Red Bill just kind of takes off. Like, what was the point of bringing him back? <laughs> like, he basically just goes like, Alright, cool, I, I, I met your mom, bye. <laughs> Perhaps Cooper just really wanted to draw Beatty Ray Bill, so... True. And then uh, we're, we get, uh, got a nice climax here where we have uh, Zarko, the Tomorrow Man, and uh, talking to Gladiator and saying that they have to uh, travel to the past and kill the God of Thunder. Yeah, I do like this. This is a. Uh, I like the idea of Gladiator, who's not a character we associate much with this kind of stuff, happening to be one of these characters in the future who's dealing with this sort of thing. Hmm. He's another guy that you know, represents a legitimate physical threat to Thor. For sure. And again, this the um, issue thirty four has. I mean, you got Kubert back. I, I I don't know how he got better. Like it, it honestly, this issue is so good. Um, I I really believe that again, the Gladiator is such a physical threat. It's awesome to see him fighting against Thor again. You you need to feel that Thor is in actual peril. Even the opening sequences where you have um, you know Thor girl on the on the uh, on the roof, and you have the perspective behind Thor. Like he looks. So badass, just he's just standing there being confronted by this this woman, um, and then even when they kind of fight each other and they're kind of blasting, it, you can really feel the raw energy here. And I just I I'm such a huge fan of Kubert. I felt like such a uh, fanboy, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think yeah the art looks great in it, and Gladiator's one of those characters where I think Thor works best when you have another character they can just sit there and throw blows back and forth one another. There are two guys who can both give out big punches and take a big punch in a believable way. So when you team them up, you're going to do a lot of really cool fights. For sure. And like that, so, I mean, the, the cover of 35, I love, because you you have these two Titanic guys facing off to against one another. You have a, a plane about to land on top of them for some reason. Um, but it just, it looks, again, there's a, there's so much in there to believe in the threat. Um, and, and even the issue before, before, we're sorry to go back and kind of be scattered a little. We have Hannah's daughter kind of being introduced back to the story for some reason. Yeah, she's finally back in, back to hating Jake Olson and complaining about him. But I love the moment when she finds him. He's crashed into a, I believe it's just a building or maybe the back of a truck. And he's on fire. He's lost the. Ha- yeah, he's on fire. He's lost the hammer, and 
so it's a great moment of peril where she's the one who's found him. She hates Jake Olson, but he's dying and on fire. It's a good what's going to happen next type moment. For sure. No, it's crazy stuff. And again, the battle in the final issue here, issue 35, is just so savage when you have Gladiator doing everything he can to really stop Thor. And uh, again, you believe in there actually being a physical threat. You're actually worried that Thor, something might actually happen to him. Exactly. I think with Thor, sometimes you're less so than with Superman. You, similar to Superman, you have sort of the problem of this character is so powerful. He's so strong. We need someone that can believably threaten him in the story. And I think Gladiator is one of those characters, just because we've seen again and again throughout the years that you know Gladiator by himself is a threat to the entire X Men team. So it makes you think, well, yeah, if Thor was by himself, perhaps he could lose to Gladiator. It's interesting, too, how they are able to make you believe in the power of, of Thor Girl by having her kind of be the one to dispatch Gladiator at the very end. Yeah, but it really shows um, establishes her and her power. I mean, it's convenient to kind of do it that way. At the end of the issue, it's interesting we we're talking about how it felt like uh, Cooper maybe didn't know how to quite grasp the grandeur of how Larson had wanted to portray Sif when she kind of ascended the throne to take over during the Odin sleep. But here at the very end, when you have Odin come back, he definitely looks very regal. Oh yeah, he's decked him out in all of the finest Asgardian king style garb. <laughs> yeah, even his beard has adornments on it. <laughs> what is up with that? It's such a weird like. Why? Why is it there? Hey, it's what you do when you're king of Asgard. <laughs> um, and then I guess this this book, and I guess this omnibus kind of ends with uh, the Enchantress. Mm-hmm. Now, did you see that coming? Uh, well, I figured something was up. I didn't know it was going to be the Enchantress, but throughout every time we've seen this period before this, she seems to have this weird, she knew way stuff, too familiar relationship to it. But she's like, she's very forthright with the way she talks to Jake in a way that. Your average person meeting a coworker for the first time would not act. No, not at all. So finding out the enchantress is like, okay, well, I didn't predict that, but that makes sense. Now, how does it make you feel going into the next volume of, of Thor? So I think they have some good stuff set up. They show us that they show us at the end of this issue that the reality that Thor is being attacked from in the future really is very bad, and Thor appears to be the ruler of that future. So you start wondering, well. What Thor's really up to that's causing all these bad things to happen. And so we have that plot established, and we have the Enchantress plot established. So we have some interesting plots going forward. We haven't sort of ended everything here to pick up new things in the future. We're sort of, it feels like a very smooth transition from Omnibus 1 into Omnibus 2. What do you know about Omnibus 2? Have you read it before? Do you know generally what happens? Uh, I know the very end in terms of doing the Avengers disassembled, but other than that, I know basically nothing. Okay, well, I'll be honest, like that that's so divorced from the rest of the run that it's not, it hasn't spoiled anything for you, really. Uh, because, I mean, Jurgen's basically wrapped up his mega story, and then you had uh, Omen come in and do Ragnarok, so, uh, you know, you, you haven't uh, spoiled yourself at all, I would say. There's a lot of good stuff there. It's definitely going to go on down some crazy roads. Um, which at the time were definitely kind of not head scratchers. That's the wrong thing to say, but just made you wonder like, how are they going to get out of this? Where are they going with this? Um, and then eventually, you know, it, it does come to an end and I'm glad you don't know too much about it. Cause I think you'll get more out of it as a result. 
Yeah, the great thing about reading these older omnibuses is there's almost a zero percent chance that it's going to get spoiled for me as well. You know, if you're anything like current, you have, I've been following along or trying to follow along with Hickman's new X Men stuff, and I feel like if I don't read that Wednesday morning, then by Wednesday afternoon, someone spoiled it for me. Mm. But no one's out there spoiling. 20-year-old Thor comics. There are spoilers out there, but no one's actively attempting to spoil them. Well, I guess we just did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just actively spoiled these 20-year-old Thor books. Well, yeah, figure, but by hour four of this across the two podcasts, if you haven't figured out or given away Thor spoilers, that's sort of our you. <laughs> um, in an upcoming episode, probably in like a month or so, I'm going to be sitting down with uh, another listener, and we're actually going to be going through, uh, I guess, the, the first half of Walt Simonson's run on Thor. Um, so if you want, like, if you want 35-year-old spoilers for Thor, uh, I'm going to have a good spot for you. Yeah, I'm going to have to read those beforehand so I can listen to those, so I can listen to that podcast. Um, I'll do something similar with the Epic Marvel podcast I know you're on as well. A lot of times I'll make sure I really want to read it, I'll read it right before I listen to the podcast so I don't spoil things. That's, uh, probably a good way to go. That way you're not ruining things. That's such an interesting, I mean, for that, there's stuff like I know I'm never going to read, so I'll listen to it and I'm like, eh, it's not really going to ruin anything for me. A lot of things I kind of know the broad strokes anyway, but, uh, once in a while there'll be one and I'm like, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and hold this one off. Exactly. There are, there are times, like you said, where I, I know for sure I'm never going to read it, so I just go ahead and listen to it, but I, with, with some of them that's particular, like, no, you said, hold off, read the book. The good thing about those podcasts is, because much like this podcast, the books are 30 years old, the podcast really can't get any more out of date because they're already out of date. <laughs> that is very true. Um, actually, so I'm, I'm supposed to be on an episode at some point, we're going to record it, but um, we're both taking a long time to read the material because we're reading the first epic collection for the Sergeant Fury and the, uh, the Howling Commandos. That is a rough read. Um, not because it's bad. But just because it's very of the time, it's very wordy, um, the stories are very similar to each other, uh, so it's hard to, at times, differentiate the characters and the issues themselves. Um, so that, eventually, I'm going to be doing with Kurt, but, Curtis, but uh, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, um, it's kind of, it's, but much a, it's very much a slog. I can imagine, yeah, those, those stories can be dense and you get about like what 500 pages of them mm-hmm. and again they're all kind of the same like they're just telling you know variations on a theme but they're all world war ii stories like you're not going to get a lot of divergent crazy superhero things because that's not what they're doing they're telling stories about the howling commandos and they're interesting but again uh, you know, it's not the most inspired work, and I'm not a huge war comic fan, but I thought it'd be an interesting thing because I could honestly say I've never read that stuff. And if it wasn't for the podcast, I probably wouldn't. Um, that probably would have been one of those ones where I wouldn't have read the material and would have just li- listened to the show and been like, oh, that sounds cool. Uh, I'm probably good living vicariously through Curtis. Yeah, I'll live vicariously through you on that stuff. Because <laughs> I think those are definitely stories that they were never meant to be read back to back to back to back to back. Oh, God, no. So you try to do it, it's a, like you said, it's a slog to get through. If you read them ten pages at a time once a month, they work very well, but they just were never intended to be, I mean, no one imagined in 1961 there'd be an epic collection collecting them like that, so no one wrote them for that. I mean, five years ago, I wouldn't have thought we'd get this for Sergeant Fury either. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see how the epic podcasts have road and the entire line has expanded so much. I mean, it seems like it's been a big success for the way they've expanded it out. 
I would I would imagine. I mean, I can't imagine they keep doing it if not. But yeah, it does make me wonder. Some of the characters who get epics, I'm just like, really? Like that's a choice. Um, like <laughs> you know, like again, like the fact that Sergeant Fury has one is kind of a strange thing. Um, before they've even done like a Shield one. Um, like I would say, most people, if they want to read a Fury story, they probably want to read him as you know, in, as an agent of Shield, not in World War Two. Like it's just not what I would have expected. It does seem like a unnatural starting point, but that's what's great about the epics is that their goal is to cover everything. So the stuff that seems like why would you ever collect these particular things get collected because the goal is to collect everything. So. Mm. You know, there's all kinds of random Daredevil stuff that they've been collecting that I've been buying aren't epics just because they're collecting it. No, for sure. Well, and speaking of like things that eventually end up getting collected, so in the past you and I have talked about um, you know the heroes return Iron Man, and so now we're actually getting past the point where we talked about with the you know the um, uh, Iron Man by Jr. Sorry, um, oh, Joe Quesada, but they're actually doing Anonymous. Um, for the mask and the Iron Man, which goes past where we were, so I think at some point we'll have to get you back to talk about that because um, that's I think we only got up to like what issue thirty and eight or something or thirty nine, but this goes right up to issue forty nine. Yeah, it's gonna be a hard podcast for you to the title. It's the Iron Man Heroes Return Omnibus Two, except for the first few issues. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, it's gonna be a rough one. Or I could just yeah. transplant that old podcast and be like, okay, the first half. Yeah. Is just a reprint of uh, of or a reposting of our original episode, and then we'll jump into the new material. Yeah, because when we did that, I thought I didn't think there was any chance they were ever going to collect past that point in Omnibus form, so I didn't see any real risk. So I was very surprised to see that. It's, it's much like the epics where I didn't see any particular marketing push Marvel would have to sell a second Iron Man on of us like that but I'm glad they are it's great that they can I'm so torn about it because when I first bought it I was more in an omnibus mode and over the t- over the years I think I've migrated a little bit more into soft covers and not wanting just everything in omnibus I think there's some things that are special that should be in omnibus but not everything is omnibus worthy at least in my estimation anymore at least because I've run out of space um, so in my mind I was like well maybe I want to get these heroes return you know complete collections of Iron Man because they did one from Fantastic Four who never got an omnibus but now they're doing one for the Busick Chen stuff, but then they announced this omnibus, and I'm like, oh man, what do I do? Like, you know, do I do I buy this? But I already have half of this material in the trade. Are they eventually going to do these complete collections for the Heroes Return and eventually get up to this point? 